Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Frameform. So thrilled that you're with us, whether you are walking in transit or driving in transit or flying in transit or just moving from one place to another. We're very happy to move with you. We're so thrilled to bring you this conversation with uh, Vanessa Sanchez and John J. Leaños. Vanessa Sanchez is a choreographer, dancer, and educator. She's the founder and executive artistic director of La Mezcla. La Mezcla is a polyrhythmic San Francisco-based dance and music ensemble rooted in Chicana, Latina, and indigenous traditions and social justice. John J. Leaños is an animator, filmmaker, artist, and professor at UC Santa Cruz. Go banana slugs! <laughs> <laughs> Along with a team of experts in their fields, these two have crafted ghostly labor, which we will be discussing in more depth today. Ghostly labor is what we consider a hybrid documentary format, exploring the history of labor in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands while displaying various percussive dances, movement, and musical traditions. As this episode is part of our Dance in a Doc series, we'll be talking about the specific screening that we had in D.C. where we actually got to host and meet you in person, which was amazing. And I'll just say from, you know, as the first filter of all dance cinema submissions before we send it out to the team, this was an instant yes for me. I was so excited to see percussive dance. I was so excited to hear just the crispness and the depth of the concept and the capture. It's truly, I, I think, a masterpiece, like beautifully captured and conceived. And I'm so excited we get a whole episode today to dedicate to you and learn more about this project. I'll also say that we don't always get unanimous yeses from our jury, and this was absolutely a quick, unanimous yes from everybody. So if you're listening and you have not yet seen Ghostly Labor, please be sure to check out links in the show notes and explore more about this truly unique dance in a doc. So what was the origin and the inspiration for this project? How did you two get connected and start crafting this work? Ghostly Labor is a, a project I'd had in the back of my mind for many, many, many years. And initially, the inspiration for this, this project as a whole, because I'll get to how it's, it's a, a multi-level project, right? We have many different elements to it, um, was my, my grandmother, who grew up as a migrant Navajo farm worker, um, starting in Colorado, New Mexico area, and migrating to the United States as a farm worker throughout her childhood and teenage years. Um, and just the stories I heard of her work, not going to school to attend the farm, was working with the family, growing up on the farm in a tent, you know, all of these, these, these stories that were passed on through oral history and connecting that with the long line of laborers that I come from. I come from a long line of, of houseworkers and, and construction workers and just always seeing how overlooked all of that work was done, even though it is literally what keeps our society moving. It's literally what's building our society. It's literally what's feeding and maintaining every element of, of daily life. Um, and so I, I just really started digging into a lot of those stories as we started developing the project, um, the choreography, we hit a pandemic, right? And, and realized we were going to have to put everything on pause, but we'd already put so much into um, developing just the concept of narrative that John Leanos and I decided to, you know, move things up a little bit and uh, make a dance film. And I'll, I'll let John speak a little bit to this, but John and I have worked together in many different capacities over the years. Um, and very, very early on in the development of this project, um, 
he was brought on as a, a collaborator and also the videographer and animator who would work on the narrative um, images and videos that would be created throughout the project. Yeah, that's right. You know, I, I worked with Vanessa on um, an earlier piece called Pachuquismo, which and I was a media artist for that live um, a production of Pachuquismo, uh, which was about the, the Pachuco histories uh, in the 1940s um, and uh, their kind of invisibility uh, in, in histori historiography. And so thinking about um, that, we looked at archives and brought some of the, the history to life. And when the pandemic hit, um, you know, theaters shut down, but Vanessa uh, kept looking for ways to keep her company working and alive. And so I think I shot a couple of videos out in a local farm area for Lincoln Center for Kids. Uh, then we also shot another film, a little video for uh, Martha's Vineyard. So we were kind of trying to keep it working and... You know, uh, Vanessa had established this relationship with a nonprofit, ALAS, Ayudando Latinos a Soñar, which is a nonprofit farm worker advocacy organiza organization in Half Moon Bay. Um, led by um, Belinda Hernandez Arriaga. And it was uh, actually, uh, Alas was, was honored as the 2023 Nonprofit of the Year in California by Senator Josh Becker recently. And, and uh, really, the, the, they provide kind of comprehensive support to farm workers um, from everything from mental health, cultural advocacy, and to eco economic well-being, right? And um, they really hold the arts and culture as a pivotal point uh, for their, their advocacy and support. And so they welcomed Vanessa into their, uh, into their community. And it, it was a process of um, over a year of going down to Half Moon Bay, making connections, um, developing relationships with farm workers. Vanessa and La Mesca sponsored um, these Farm Worker Fridays that Alas hosts. And that is where, where they um, bring lunches out to the farm workers on, on certain Fridays um, and offer them a break in their work. And, and Vanessa actually brought her tap boards out there with a couple of dancers, and they offered a, a couple of uh, dance uh, performances while, while, they, while the farm workers were eating. And that, for me, that was kind of reminiscent of Luis Valdez's Teatro Camp Campesinos, the, the tradition from 1970s where Valdez uh, with Cesar Chavez brought theater to those same farm, uh, farm communities, right? And so it was kind of a, a, a nod to that, which we call kind of half-seriously baile campesino, um, in, in that those efforts to, you know, not only um, cater to the immediate needs, um, but also uh, kind of resonate the to, towards the historical legacy of cultural engagement within these um, communities. That's incredible. It really is. And it's so wonderful to see well, it's so wonderful to see the film that came out of it, but also understandable that the film is just such a small part of the greater process of, of partnering with Alas and uh, partnering with these communities. And I would actually like to understand better, like, how did you build trust with these uh, workers to share their stories and then eventually you know, participate with them in creating this film? Yeah, that was... Um that was a series of just showing up, you know, it was, it was, it was just a long process of just showing up. Belinda, as John mentioned, who is the, the founder and director of, of Alas, um, is someone I've, I'd heard about and known about the work that she's doing. And it just so happened that at the start of the pandemic, my, I found out that my mom um, was friends with Belinda and was making uh, masks 
for for you know the organization um, was was sewing these masks to hand out to the farm workers, and so I used my the connection of my mother to to be connected with Belinda directly, and so you know we just kind of connected, and she she's like I've heard of your work, and it would be amazing to work with you, and so it was a period of time where I was just driving down to Half Moon Bay to meet with Belinda and the, and first the team right the internal administrative team. Um, and just kind of, you know, talking about the work that they do, the work that we do, how we could potentially collaborate on different things. Um, and, you know, one day they asked, would, would you like to come out with us to the farm to to deliver lunches for one of our farm worker Fridays? And so um, I I went down there and I went alone. And I remember that day, it was my first time, you know, I, I didn't know we actually had to drive onto the farms. And, you know, it was my first time doing this with them. And I was showing up just as a volunteer, you know, I was just there to volunteer and support and, you know, be there in support of all the work that they do. And with the first farm we got to, they brought out a tarima, which is the box that we, we dance on um, in, in traditional son harocho uh, dance and music. Um, they brought out a tarima and said, oh, since you're here, can you, can you dance for us? And so I happened to have a pair of shoes in my trunk. And I was like, sure. So I ended up doing a little kind of dance demo um, for some of the farm workers as they were eating. It just kind of started through this process of being there, right? It was really intentional. It wasn't the kind of like, hey, we're gonna come interview you and then leave. It was very much like building this this trust first with Belinda and kind of their internal team and then them inviting me out to, to volunteer in the space. And then once we got there, starting to develop a trust with the farm workers, right? Starting to, they knew, had a sense of who we are. As John mentioned, we, we sponsored some of the lunches and also in that process held some donation drives to raise money to buy goods for the farm workers and collected donations as well. We did that a few times over the series of a few months. And, you know, it was that whole process of building trust that then we were able to get invited by some of the farm workers to hold interviews. And then eventually they invited us to film our film, our project on their farm, right? So they actually one day offered that and then took us for a tour on their, their different farms, which was amazing. It was definitely over a year process, but worth it in in making a real connection that we still maintain. And I'm still in regular communication. Following the film, I was still going out there holding, you know, we were still taking donations. We just did a big series of donation handouts in the sister community in Pajaro down by Santa Cruz that was devastated by flood. It was never the kind of thing where it was just for a project. It's always been kind of this long-term community relationship we're trying to continue to nurture. That's so beautiful. I think that authenticity really shines through the project. It's not just the dance and musically that we see and the creativity there, but having the interviews, really having those multiple locations. And there's just a sense of integrity there that, as you said, it wasn't just for the project. Often, and I find increasingly, we can see short films or documentaries that cover a particular topic, particularly if they are trending or in the public discourse and it's always something that we need to discuss as a jury and think okay who is making this is it actually representing something does it feel exploitative is it well-intentioned and ghostly labor is just so in a class of its own when it comes to addressing these social issues a striking moment for a lot of viewers that i know when i first saw it i was like oh does it say that um when the text on screen pops up and it says these motherfuckers colonized corn and pardon my language and the upcoming pun but was this the kernel of inspiration <laughs> for the project what was your purpose and your goal with bringing this project to life 
<laughs> Sorry. Well, that's corny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Good job. Um, <laughs> keep all of this in. Um, so, <laughs> so the piece, These Motherfuckers Colonize Corn, it, it came... It came very organically, actually, as I was doing research for the overall project, right? So in addition to the actual in-person outreach and, and, and interviews, um, I, I do a lot of reading, right? I'm reading a lot of historical um, books. I'm reading a lot of articles. I'm, I'm doing a lot of reading. And one of the big things that I felt really strongly about before I even started creating material or any choreography or, or rhythmic arrangements for the piece at all were, um, if I were gonna talk about farming in this project and we're, we're gonna talk about how it's changed over the years, I have to start to learn about indigenous farm practices, right, in the United States and in what is in Mexican farming. Like that's something people live their whole lives learning about, right? So I, I just kind of wanted to touch the tip of the iceberg in terms of all that goes into it. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years of tradition, right, of, of farming and how people have sustained themselves prior to mass production, right? How, how has the land been used in this context? And so, you know, in this process, I, I did a lot of work learning and reading about the Tres Hermanas, the, the Three Sisters, which is an indigenous farming practice of bean, corn, and squash, right? Where those, those crops are planted together to support each other and they actually thrive when they are working together. And so throughout the project, that is why there are so many trios, right? Is really, really engaging with this, this concept of the Tres Hermanas and, and this idea of a larger interdependency, right? Where one supports another, where one pushes another to thrive, not just coexisting, but they're actually thriving together. And so that was how I built a lot of the material for the show. And I was reading a book about indigenous farming practices in the Americas, specifically what is now the United States and Mexico. And I was reading a lot about, you know, how years ago there were hundreds of strains of corn, hundreds of strains of corn crops that, that the land supported. And, and as colonization happened, as um, mass production started happening, and the, the industrial revolution, if you will, how that shifted, especially once we got into the North American Free Trade Act, and the corn crops were actually minimized in the amount that were being produced to maximize profits as corporations and industry bought the land, right, that these indigenous farm workers had for so much of their life and essentially made it so that they could no longer live off the land, right? They put so much stuff, pesticides and everything into the land, so many chemicals into the land to produce the, you know, specifically these three, three strains of corn, right? Taking away all of these other beautiful strains of corn that existed. And I was reading this book and I'm so sorry, I can't remember the name of it. I would love to find it and send it to you. But I actually was reading this part of the book and I said out loud, these motherfuckers colonized corn. Like I actually said that as, as I was reading it. <laughs> and that is what turned into this piece, these motherfuckers colonized corn. You know, it was bringing together this concept of indigenous farm practices and then the North American Free Trade Act that just completely shifted how the land was producing and, and ruined it in a lot of ways for a lot of people's livelihoods. I'm very interested in, well, first of all, Vanessa, both you and La Mescla have such um, a incredible mastery in so many different types of percussive dance and which spans not only tap dance but also uh, forms like zapateado and as well as 
Afro-Caribbean, Puerto Rican, and Haitian movements. And what's so interesting about the way they appear in this film is how interestingly hybridized they are and sort of the metaphorical implications of that hybridization. So can you speak about the different kinds of dance that we see and how you landed on how to hybridize them? Yeah, that, that's a, that is a great question. Throughout ghostly labor, I would say the main dance forms we see are, are tap dance, um, sapteado jarocho, which comes from the son jarocho tradition of Veracruz, Mexico, um, and kind of a, a fusion of different Afro-Caribbean forms. Um, the movement, we see a lot of Afro-Cuban um, and Afro-Haitian movement in um, an Afro-Brazilian movement in the choreography and rhythmically what some of the, the percussionists are playing, we're, we're incorporating some Afro-Puerto Rican and Afro-Cuban um, rhythms in there. The way I, I came to incorporate these is these styles are what I've lived and breathed my whole life, like for the past 20 plus years. This is what I've done. This is what I've lived and breathed. In. And in each of them, I've trained very intentionally over 20 years in each of these. I've been tap dancing since I was four. Um, my family is from the state of Veracruz, so Son Jarocho is something I grew up around, and I ended up moving to Veracruz, Mexico in 2009-ish um, to focus and train more in the cultural tradition, not just the dance form, but like the full complexity of the cultural tradition. And when we're looking at Afro-Cuban, Afro-Haitian, and Afro-Brazilian dance, I've been training in those locally in the Bay Area um, and abroad for, you know, something like 20 years now. And so for me as a choreographer, I felt really strongly about in order to tell the story, I needed to use all of these dance forms to address not only kind of my, my choreographic vision, but also if we're looking at the history of, of what we're talking about, you know, tap dance is a black dance form that came from African people who were forcibly removed from their homes and brought here, right? So, so that, that's the history of tap dance. And, and Sapteado Jarocho has a very similar history. And there was a port in, in Veracruz, Mexico that, that a lot of people don't acknowledge or talk about and the Afro-Mexican influence, right? Sapteado Jarocho and Son Jarocho as a tradition is a fusion of African, indigenous, and Spanish traditions, right? And so that's how that came to be. And looking at Afro-Cuban, Afro-Brazilian at specifically, these were following the same trajectory of people forcibly removed from their land and taken to another land and enslaved, right? And so part of looking at um, the history of labor is also looking at the history of who's been doing the labor, right? And so I felt really, really strongly about very intentionally incorporating all of these elements with all of these rich histories to not just be like, look at what's happening right now in, in labor unions and labor trends, but also let's, let's look at what's been happening and who got us here and who's brought us here. Yeah, I, w I would just like to mention, you know, that, the, that Vanessa played um, and trained and danced in the, tradition, the Puerto Rican tradition of bomba um, for, for many years. She actually uh, played with uh, a group called Las Bomberas de la Bahia, a female bomba group here in the Bay Area. Um, and that last piece in the film, is a bomba rhythm and which she integrates tap onto and i remember like watching it with some of the bomba community members and and they were just like oh my god she did it she finally did the you know the tap bomba piece that she's been wanting to do for many years so i, th I, th I think that's really um a special and something uh, that i think uh, these kind of these cultural insights that that people 
were, are able to uh, kind of tap into, no, no pun intended, um, <laughs> in, in a way to get, uh, understand like the cultural layers and the, the mixing of, of them or la mezcla of these uh, particular forms. And that's truly part of how these styles emerge. It's as a result of migration, you know, voluntary and involuntary, mostly making creative beauty out of what could otherwise be very dire circumstances and finding a way to create life and create joy and create this cathartic expression out of these circumstances. We talked a little bit about the dance content of the film. What about how the songs were crafted or what was that practical and creative process integrating the various musical elements and creating and composing those songs? Well, I, I think, you know, the conversations that we had with farm workers and the, the testimonials and oral histories that we developed uh, with them uh, really became the inspiration for the original son El Camotal, which is um, a, the sweet potato, right, which is the first song in the piece, which really pays tribute to the land and, and the laborers and acknowledges the land as kind of a character in a way, um, and the, the root of, um, of, of the work that farm workers do in a way. Um, and so after the interviews, we um, sent them to one of Vanessa's uh, teachers in, in Veracruz, um, Laura Rebolloso, who developed a certain couplets and, and, um, and lyrics uh, for the El Camotal, which is a traditional son, um, but which, which uh, um, La Mezcla and Vanessa then, then converted into this, uh, I think, different style, right? Uh, I don't know what you would call el camotal. It's a very kind of a mixture of, of different styles from son jarocho to um, the rhythms. And I think Vanessa can speak to that for sure. Yeah, so so I, we had this idea of, of, you know, we're talking about the farm and we're talking about plants and crops. And el camotal is, is a, like John said, a traditional son. And in its traditional lyric, it's talking about all these different plants and crops and, and you know, um, nature. And so it just really connected with me in, in trying to have a, uh, an original son written in a traditional style, like based on a traditional son. But with that, I wanted to be really intentional about bringing in the Afro-Cuban element to the son, right? So um, the Camotal son is, is danced or, you know, the main rhythmic pattern is a pattern called Café con Pan. We love coffee and bread so much we named a, a rhythm on it yeah yeah but that is that is the rhythmic pattern that's a traditional rhythmic pattern in son harocho right very common one and so that is in a it's in a six eight pattern it's not just a six eight right none of these are just it's just a six eight it's you know it definitely has its it has its swing as my maestra laura would say tiene su swing right it has its swing it has it has its flow it has its 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 significant attributes to it right but if, if we're looking just in, in timestamps, it's, it's a 6-8 pattern. Um, and then in, in the tradition, the Afro-Cuban tradition, there is a rhythm called bembe, right? And bembe um, is played traditionally with large gourd instruments called shekere, right? And, and the conga, and oftentimes there'll be a bell. We didn't include all of the instruments because we needed to leave space for all of the different percussive elements that would be put in there. Um, but we, we essentially took a bembe, a bembe rhythm, and then put on top of it the structure of the son harocho son. And so we have the structure. In traditional settings, there would be two singers. A singer calls and responds, but um, we left the space open, you know, so that we could have a little more room for the bembe, the shakeres, to, 
to be heard. Um, and then on, we also layered the, the Sapteado Jarocho on top of that. And so, you know, it was, it was a very intentional process from the lyrics being written, which traditional song we wanted to base it off of, all the way through how the instrumentation and rhythmic elements came to be. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I can't compliment it enough because it's amazing. So this film as a whole is just so rhythmically and sonically driven that capturing sound well is extremely important. And not only is it captured well here, it's really captured masterfully. And captured considering the difficulty of not only working with location recording, but working with location recording in Half Moon Bay specifically, which is a town that's right next to the water, also on the low end of some hills, really windy all the time. So can you talk about how the process of capturing sound and the ways you could capture it cleanly? Uh, yes, certainly. You know, um, we were cons- concerned about all of that, right? And, and I, I'd have to say that the sound capturing was uh, created like the most anxiety for me uh, before, during, and after <laughs> our recording. Um, but we were in a canyon type uh, scenario um, and it, it was really a magical place because we were like in, there were two hills on either side of us and with the, the music and the instruments and the percussive uh, beats that were happening, we would get this feedback, and it was just really, uh, it sounded amazing, like live to our, our ears. It ha- were, there was this kind of stereo effect that was happening while we were doing it. Um, but we uh, were working uh, with um, a, an audio engineer, Jim Choi, and he, um, we had 13 channels, um, we had uh, uh, um, Laughs on on singers, and we we didn't really have the the correct contact mics. So we tried to put um, lavaliers on the bottom of, of some of the tarimas and tap boards, and that really didn't work out because it was distorting. Um, but base, and then we had a, a big boom mic that that Jim was holding to too. And so we had, uh, you know, halfway through the piece or through the filming, Jim says to me, he's like, you know, this is not a one person. Uh, audio recording session and I was like yes I know and so anyway he really did a great job of capturing everything and and getting at least some um, workable sound Um, and and then we we handed that off to um, Greg Lando who's an Emmy award-winning producer audio producer um, here in the Bay Area and, and he kind of worked his magic in trying to find the 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 right um um, you know, uh, recordings and, uh, and, and, and capturing uh, to, in order to make a mix that really made sense. Um, so I think that most of uh, the capture was through the boom mic, um, but, uh, um, but a lot of it was also um, on, on laughs and, and what have you. So it was, um, I think, you know, one of the, one of the things like, like, do we have the audio was, was, was the question. It was like a lot of, a lot of like thinking about that. And I kept on asking Jim, um, did you get that? Did you get that? And, and he would like kind of shrug at me and I think he said I think so so um, but it ended up working out great um, and, and we ended up having enough um, enough to really make a, a solid mix and and uh, like I can't really um, uh, say enough about Greg Lando's work on on this project in the mix he did a great job it's extraordinary and something that also stands out about the film is that at least it's my understanding that there was little to no ADR or fully done that it is mostly on like from the location itself 
That's right. Everything is uh, recorded live. Um, and yeah, we, we didn't, um, it was one of the things that we really couldn't do, right? You can't really do that with percussive dance. I mean, you, it's, it just doesn't make sense. So we, we had to record live and, and uh, we made it happen. So we're really happy about that. The, the level of detail and care on every level of this project is what I think sets it apart. And you just kind of feel it when you watch it. You're just like, oh, this is this is something else. As someone that's worked with percussive dance and film before, and my husband is a tap dancer, so every time we get any sort of percussive film come in, whether it's a doc or it's more of a short film, he doesn't even want to watch it first. He'll just listen to it. And I remember his reaction as being like, wow, how did they do this? <laughs> Not only is this amazing... But I want to know how because it's it's really disheartening when we see certain styles uh, underrepresented or even certain families of styles, which I would just put the big family of percussive dance in, in this example here. I get so excited when I see a film come in, but then, you know, you said you can't really do the Foley. Well, people do. <laughs> and you can really hear the difference. And you really can. And I understand the reasons why it's done, but to allow yourself the time, you know, even from the point of conception with this project, the time that you took to build those relationships, the time you took to learn the land and learn the history, and even just the technical aspects that are so important when it comes to the actual execution of the project, it was all so worth it. So thank you for sharing your secrets today. <laughs> so hopefully we can inspire more filmmakers to do the same. And maybe it means we do fewer projects total, but each of those projects are that much more fantastic because we have the level of detail and virtuosity that we're looking for. So thank you for sharing all those juicy details today. Oh, you're welcome. I just wanted to shout out the the uh, the farm worker Serafina Avila Garcia, who who was really kind of uh, very generous. And these the farm workers who we met are really salt of the earth, humble, uh, generous people who really invited us in. And even though you know we are kind of crazy weird artists uh, coming in and doing strange things on this on, on the land, um, um, and you know there it was really a magical experience i think our producer harry gregory was said it was the the most uh impactful uh filming session that he's ever had in his life so and and you know there were some magical moments there was one point during el camotal where where they were singing and playing and we were rec recording live and there were these two um hawks flying overhead overhead and i was looking at them i was like what's what are these hawks doing and one of them screeched at a moment in time in the film, it was it, so it became part of the uh, part of the uh, uh, the soundtrack. It, it, if you listen to it, you'll hear like a hawk screeching as if uh, it were singing with us. It was really it was really amazing. So <laughs> we all had to stop after that. We'd say, "Did we really hear that?" <laughs> it was really really quite quite a um, a session. So thank you. It was the ancestors giving you a shout out. <laughs> well, actually, I hope you don't mind. I would like to ask one more question, um, so more selfishly anything else. This film has been on the festival circuit for just over a year and it really is the first time at least that I can recall seeing a, a hybrid documentary really be embraced as a tr along with the traditional documentary films and we've seen it screen at documentary film festivals. It has won best documentary at multiple film festivals 
I'm actually really interested. Like, is there any particular feedback that's surprised you about this film? Yeah, Ghostly Labor has had really a, uh, an amazing festival run. We've had um, over 40 film festivals um, uh, to date and, and won, you know, awards in different festivals from uh, from Dance uh, Camera West in Hollywood to the Chican Indian Film Festival in Denver to um, a f- Docs Without Borders Film Festival. So it's had a various... Um, audiences in which have enjoyed it and we you know we tried not to make it a talkie and we wanted to have this uh this this kind of blend um uh, work with it and i think cer- certain people do respond to it and and even festivals that don't necessarily uh carry or or screen dance films have, have been somewhat receptive to it as well um so yeah it's it's had a great run well i i just think for me in terms of of feedback I, I, it's, it's been really interesting in how it resonates with people, you know, different people kind of come up after, um, and I, I'm, I'm speaking mainly about audience, um, you know, and, and it resonates with some, a personal story in their life or, you know, and, and that's, that's been really interesting to be like, oh my gosh, this reminded me of my family and, you know, um, and I think it's been really great to be able to connect with, with audience members and people in that way. Um, there's also been, you know, uh, we had this experience in New York. So we went to the Dance on Camera Film Festival at the Lincoln Center. And it was really interesting. After our film screen, these two women came up to us and said that they had seen it in Austria. <laughs> and were so excited because they had a film that also got into the Lincoln Center Film Festival. So they were so excited to be able to see the film again. Um, and so just, you know, it's been really interesting to see how it resonates with people who aren't necessarily connected to, you know, labor in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, but they, they felt um, moved and connected by it on some level. So it's, it's been a really interesting process to, to hear each person's kind of individual, the audience members who choose to share their, their individual um, connections and kind of reflections on the piece. Well, it's so well-deserved. I'm not surprised you're making waves internationally, and I'm so glad that this project is getting all of the attention, all of the accolades, all of the screen time, and all the buzz that it deserves. And it was really high up on our list for the podcast this season to have you both on to talk more about it. Putting the program together last year for Dance Cinema, I had this as like an anchor because while it is a great example of a short documentary, it is not just talking heads and it's not just, you know, a relevant social issue. It's not just regionally specific. It's all of those things and so much more. And thank you so much for sharing about all those layers of complexity today because the more I learn about this, the more respect I have for each of you individually and your collaboration. And I think Ghostly Labor will have continue to have a very successful run and will definitely be remembered. It's truly a unique project and I think a very important project. Last I checked, last I remembered when we checked in was actually at Dance Camera West, which all four of us were there. <laughs> uh, last I remember, you were talking about how this was going to be a live performance. So is that the next iteration of Ghostly Labor? And what's next for this project and La Mezcla? Right now, um, La Mezcla and myself, we're in the process of developing Ghostly Labor into a full-length dance theater production. Um, that will premiere in December, December 15th, 16th, and 17th at Brava Theater. You know, it's, it's been really interesting um, shifting from, from film format to, to live production, you know, also considering that 
the film really focused on the narrative and, and research that we've done with farm workers, but the, the work overall, the, the full production will also incorporate a lot of um, narrative and, and experience with domestic workers. And so I've done a lot of work with an amazing group called La Colectiva, which is a collective of domestic workers in San Francisco, and, and also looking at fights for rights for domestic workers alongside farm workers in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands over the years. Um, and so it's it's been an interesting process just starting with taking, let's take with what's in the film and turn it into a live performance, even just those transitions in, in and of themselves and, and expanding those pieces and just growing the the full production has been a big process. And we're excited to say that the show will tour in 2024 throughout the U.S. as well. Oh, fantastic. I hope you come to D.C. We're, we're, we're working on that, actually. I think it has to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, also, we've been commissioned by Dance Camera West to um, explore a second part of Gulski Labor or another film, basically uh, about domestic work. And the, our original concept was to have uh, Gulski Labor be about farm workers, domestic workers, and, and, and industrial workers as well. Um, but we got so uh, deep into the farm working community that we decided to, just to focus on that. But now we have an, uh, a, an opportunity to, to film another piece about um, domestic labor, domestic workers, also invisible uh, to, um, to, you know, to our kind of capitalist society. And so we uh, have been interviewing folks um, and Vanessa has been designing a, a choreography and thinking about how and where to, um, to film this. And I think it's going to be, the location will be inside of a house and in different locations where this type of work happens. So we're, we're really excited about that. And, and I think we'll, we'll begin filming in January. That's going to be amazing. I can't wait to see it. That is so awesome and just so wonderful to see this project continue to have legs and continue to evolve. So Vanessa and John, really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having us. It was, it's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you so much for having us. This is Frameform, hosted by Hannah Weber, Jen Ray, and Claire Schweitzer. Episode edited by the Frameform team with social media support from Maddie Leitner and music by Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening.